And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when we cover not just the waterfront, but everything. Remember, everything, everywhere, all at once. Well, we have a really interesting show tonight, a very packed show, a very complicated show, because we're going to be introducing a new model that Andrew Curry and I have worked out over the last week or so, which we think fits all the data available to us in all the public sources that we reconnoiter all the time. And it actually has some elements of prediction, which, uh, you know, remember, science is nothing if it's not prediction. So we're going to be predicting some additional data points that everyone, uh, us here and you guys out there in the audience, are going to be watching for to see if our model is correct. And I'm telling you, it explains so much of the weirdness which has driven me crazy about all this stuff for decades. But that's later in the show. Uh, we're going to be going through a lot of very interesting news items, things that have happened on the um, geopolitical front, on the space front, on the you know high frontier front. Uh, so let's get right to it. What you want to do is, to, if you're not a regular listener, and we probably have a lot of new listeners from the Clyde Lewis show that I did a couple nights ago. You want to go to the other side of midnight.com. I mean, if you're listening, you're probably already there. And if you're on a phone at the very top, you will see a uh, navigation bar. If you're on a computer, uh, it it says, you know, in bright green, uh, tonight's show Saturday with a whole bunch of people. If you hover over your navigation bar on your phone or over the left-hand side of all those green names, a, a menu will come up to the right or below. And you want to click on my name where it says Fast Links to Items. And that will take you to the guest page where we have um, various items for various guests that are part of the programs you know, tonight. Uh, my item, my first item is uh, the UN court in The Hague issued orders to Israel in terms of Gaza to limit deaths and damage. We're now looking at something like 26,000 people killed, half of them children, uh, 65,000 wounded. These are numbers coming from the uh, uh, government of Gaza. I believe the Palestinian Authority is actually issuing these, and they are you know, closely connected in the other part of the West Bank to what's going on in Gaza. Um, this is unconscionable. And of course, the uh, uh, South African government took uh, Israel to the court, accusing it of genocide. The court has not ruled on that, but has given an interim ruling, basically ordering a limit to deaths and damage. And that can only happen if there is serious negotiation among all parties bombing stops. I mean, this is this is a nightmare. But the reason that we're posting it at the top of tonight's show is because it's my perspective that the only way that the multiple levels of insanity going on on planet Earth tonight are going to change, are going to come to a stop, are going to pause, 
are going to be reassessed as if the human race is confronted with a much larger problem and opportunity, namely the surrounding reality of extraterrestrial intelligence, both in the form of active players zipping around in spacecraft and doing God knows what both here and out there, as well as our particular uh, province, which is pursuit of artifacts left by a lot of folks all over the solar system. We can't tell the players yet because we haven't found the libraries. When we find the libraries, and that's only a matter of knowing what you're looking for and then looking, starting with the moon, uh, then we'll know, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. So uh, let's swing right into it. Um, this has been a pretty amazing couple, three weeks in the space game, in the space biz. Item number two in my radio with pictures section, right under number one. Um, the Japanese tried to land an unmanned probe, one of many nations and private uh, companies and corporations that are now part of this, you know, second age of space, this moon rush, this, this kind of gold rush on the moon kind of like uh, 1849 in California. And there's an awful lot of players sending a variety of spacecraft, uh, all of them at the moment unmanned, although the Chinese are making serious noises about mounting a manned mission in the foreseeable future, uh, next couple of years, if not sooner. We have, of course, the U.S. Artemis mission, which has been delayed. We covered all this in previous shows uh kind of centering on the Peregrine unmanned mission that was sent from a private company called Astrobotic, um, built and uh, put together, assembled, designed, all of that going back some 16 years. And then it launched on the 8th of January and everything kind of went to hell in a handbasket. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. In the last week, um, the slim mission, the unmanned S-L-I-M, which stands for Smart Landing uh, on Moon, um, I'm sorry, Start Landing Investigating Moon, which is the acronym from the Japanese. It reached the uh, moon, was in orbit, was deorbited just a few days ago, and wound up almost making it to the surface and then something really weird happened. Gosh, wouldn't expect that. And you can see in item number two, that's a picture from the Japan Times, uh, which is being reissued by Space.com. The damn spacecraft landed on its head. It literally is, is upside down. And the... Um, it actually tipped over on its side because it's it, it was not supposed to land according to their design and plan of the spacecraft uh, with the rocket engines pointed down like normal landings are, but it had this very bizarre rotation just above the landing surface where it was supposed to tip over and then plunk down on a slope. And I mean, we'll, we'll get into all of that a little later in the program. The point is that it didn't work. And what you're going to find out later is 
in our model why it didn't work, and the Japanese have come a whisker away from admitting our model is correct. So we are going to um, get into that in detail uh, as we go through the rest of the morning. In the interim, item number three, uh, this is the uh, official BBC story of the end, the rather ignominious end of the Peregrine mission. Remember, on the 8th of uh, January, on a new, brand new Vulcan rocket, NASA launched a mission for Astrobotic, this private company, a robot named Peregrine, which of course is a Falcon, which is a code name for Horus. And we did a whole show with the intricacies of the Peregrine mission, its payload, which included little canisters, little capsules containing DNA and ashes of people both deceased and still living that was going to be landed on the moon. Initially, at a place called Lacus Mortis, the Lake of Death, which should kind of tell you what the priority of the mission really was. Uh, NASA paid Astrobotic $108 million to place five scientific experiments aboard the Peregrine mission. There were something like 15 other payloads from like seven or eight other countries around the world, mostly mementos, keepsakes, notes, um, names of people that wanted to be participants in the mission, a wide variety of non-scientific, um, um, what would you call it? Well, payloads is the proper term. But only five of them were active scientific payloads bought and paid for by our friendly local neighborhood space agency. It was launched in the wee hours of the morning of uh, Monday, the 8th of January. And a few hours later, according to NASA and Astrobotic, the fuel system for its own engines, an attitude control system on the Peregrine robot, uh, for some reason sprang a leak. And there were the perils of Pauline as it was cruising toward the moon, and then it was determined that it did not have enough fuel to land on the moon after the leak uh, had really calmed down and was basically a trickle toward the end of its uh, life. Um, Astrobotic and NASA tried to resurrect something from the mission, which was to turn on all the experiments and get data as it uh, went out to the lunar distance, because, of course, it had a weird kind of looping trajectory that went twice around the Earth in this long egg-shaped orbit that stretched all the way to the moon, 239,000 miles, and then came back to Earth and then whipped around and was supposed to go back to the moon on a second pass and then go into orbit and then land. Well, none of that last part took place because um, even though the leak radically diminished and even though there were a number of voices, ours in particular, saying that they could safely, with the fuel remaining and the management of the engines, they could do a burn around the Earth, which would put them on a uh, escape trajectory from the Earth-Moon system, putting the spacecraft and its something like 65 capsules of uh, remains, uh, as well as the instruments, on a heliocentric orbit that would have taken it 
out about as far as Mars and then back in toward Earth and then out toward Mars, and it would have swung in this eternal orbit forever as a kind of a memento to the, the, the spirit of Horus, the spirit of the falcon in the Egyptian motif. For some reason, and there is great debate over who gave orders to whom and why and when, um, the Astrobotic Corporation, instead of prolonging the life of its spacecraft as long as possible and gaining as much data from the uh, turned-on experiments as possible in an interplanetary cruise mode, as opposed to sitting on the moon mode, they chose to basically, for the first time in the history of the United States space program, they chose to kill it deliberately by having it re-enter at high velocity, something like 25,000 miles per hour or more over the South Pacific Ocean and burn up in a blazing streak of glory like an artificial meteor. Not put it into eternal orbit around the sun, not preserve the DNA and ashes of, you know, Gene Roddenberry and Arthur Clarke and uh, Majel Roddenberry and, and, and their son Rod, um, but in fact to doom it to a, a quick death over the South Pacific. And to this night, we do not know why this decision was made. There are some really dumb excuses and that item number three basically goes through the final, you know, days and hours of the Peregrine mission. Um, I was hoping, uh, we haven't been able to get through to him yet, but I was hoping that we were going to have one of the uh, experimenters who had a payload on board, not an experiment, but an archive, a library, which has been carefully farmed out around the solar system on a variety of unmanned missions by a friend and colleague of the Enterprise mission and of the other side of midnight, uh, Nova Spivak. Nova's been on the show a couple of times. We've talked about his projects to basically place very carefully um, created archives on thin sheets of impermeable nickel, which are embossed with literal engravings that are a how-to building step by step by step for a future culture that may not even have as much as a microscope, but they start there and then they move up into more complex levels of the coding and you basically have the equivalent of Wikipedia or the Encyclopedia Britannica, the entire written history of planet Earth, all of us, all of these nations and all of our last 6,000 years engraved through this special technology and process that Spivak and the Arch Foundation has created to create these archives on interplanetary and planetary and even low Earth orbiting spacecraft or high orbit spacecraft that have been sent out from Earth, kind of like that scene in Contact, or no, it was Cosmos, where Carl Sagan takes a thistle from, from the field and literally faces left in the camera and blows on it and you see all these little thistles blowing out across the field, spreading out that's kind of like what Nova's been doing for the last several years in scattering 
copies of this voluminous and comprehensive ancient human library on missions and vessels and spacecraft fanning out across the solar system. And since he had one of those archives on the Peregrine mission, I thought it would be nice to have him on board tonight to describe in somewhat more detail, A, how his, his institution, his nonprofit, is doing this, how they literally created from the ground up the technology, which should last in space millions and millions of years. And uh, what he's involved in right now, which is a similar archive here on Earth, one of, I believe, several that he's been participating in, the last uh, which is, I believe, going to be buried in a mine like a mile down with some kind of indicator so folks on top, if there's ever a collapse of civilization and we climb back up the ladder once again to technology, someone will find this, they'll be able to decode the plaques and the stuff on the surface that tell them there's something priceless hidden a mile down and the process will begin again. In other words, if you're trying to recreate a civilization, it might be useful to have a vast library showing you how to do it. And of course, uh, I is reminding me I should tell everybody that you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight, and tonight's show is called, as you'll see later in the program, A Piece of the Action for January 27th, 2024. And the reason we picked that name will become quite evident uh, as we move through the evening and then the morning. So, continuing. Um, if you look at... Let me look at my items here. If you, if you look at the Peregrine... Uh, lander uh, item in number three. One of the biggest mysteries, and I guess we don't have Holger yet, one of the biggest mysteries is why, for the first time ever, with a spacecraft that was not only surviving, but was projected to have a useful lifetime based on the fuel, uh, not, not just of hours, but of weeks, which could have given the scientists at NASA who paid as I said, the agency paid $108 million to carry those five experiments. There could have been all kinds of both scientific data. Uh, Astrobotic has a major contract for later this year to send another spacecraft to the moon, a robot, much bigger, much more complicated. This one designed to do real, meaningful research into the crucial parameter that has to be present on the moon. Otherwise, no one can talk about realistically lunar bases or, or you know, cities someday. In other words, looking into the idea of in situ resources, water, nitrogen, hydrocarbons, things like that that are useful both in breathing and drinking and making rocket fuel and a whole bunch of other things which were first detected and analyzed in some detail by another unmanned national mission called La Crosse, which was sent to the moon back in 2009, and which gave us an amazing inventory of volatiles. These are materials that kind of leak away or outgas or turn into vapor. That's why they're called volatiles. Uh, and it turns out that the moon, uh, apart from being a dead, dry, landscape 
Um, it's basically at the polls, not really anywhere else, but at the polls, North and South Pole, there are extraordinary reservoirs of these materials in frozen form under the ground and even much, much deeper. And it's those that the second astrobotic mission, the so-called Griffin mission, uh, is going to explore sometime later in 2024 when the Griffin unmanned spacecraft, again created by Astrobotic, leaves for the moon as part of a precursor set of Artemis missions, unmanned missions, to inventory in much greater detail the resources and volatiles and vital things like ices, uh, a wide variety of ices, including water ice, that are present at the South Pole of the Moon, which is where the Viper mission, which has been delayed already by about a year, uh, was intended later this year to land. Now, of course, with everybody really focused on the design death of Peregrine, built obviously by the same company, I mean, wouldn't it have been useful for a company which has never launched a mission before, which has operational constraints, communications, scheduling, expertise, wouldn't it have been useful to give the people at Astrobotic in their own control center really invaluable operational, you know, time working the dials, working the communications, working the instruments, commanding and downloading computers and all that on a real live mission in space, not a computer simulation, but a real mission that somehow they were able to rescue so that the fuel uh, on board was expected to last for weeks, which, had given, which would have given them invaluable experience. Instead, for some reason, which tonight is really still unknown. We don't know who gave the orders. Legally, it should have been Astrobotic, but there are serious rumors from the industry that NASA simply told Astrobotic to kill it, kill it in the crib before it even gets near the moon. And kinds of dumb and stupid excuses about nodding, not wanting to clutter up cislunar space. Does anybody have any idea how many million square miles there are between the Earth and Moon in a volume that's the size of the lunar orbit, a huge sphere, a quarter of a million miles in rate? I mean, their excuse was infantile, juvenile, silly, and stupid, and obviously a lie. No, there was some other hidden agenda which demanded for the first time in NASA's entire history that a working, rescued spacecraft capable of giving all kinds of crucial, real-time information was deliberately commanded to be destroyed. Wonder what was really going on. Well, someday we may know. Somebody may, may leak something in the next week, in the next month, in the next year, next 10 years, who knows? Anyway. Uh, well, so far, there is no joy uh, in um, uh, Nova, so we're going to move on. We're basically almost at the bottom of the uh, uh, first half hour of The Other Side of Midnight. 
When we come back, I'm going to, you might want to look at item number four, because this is directly where uh, I took tonight's title of the uh, program. This is a very, very interesting uh, episode of uh, Star Trek original series. And when we get into the content of tonight's show, you're going to see why uh, I chose it in concert with Andrew to describe this new model for why all of these weirdnesses that appear to make no sense unless you have a meta model make no sense at all for what is really going on. But we think, and you'll be the judge, of course, if our model fits the data better than any that has come before. And again, the essence of good science is that the model should predict something. Or, if you're really lucky, more than something. More than one something. Some some things, plural. So we will see. Okay, moving on. Item number five. Um, got about five minutes to till the, till the bottom of the hour. Another major story coming out of space in the last couple weeks revolves around NASA's unmanned OSIRIS-REx mission to the little asteroid about 1,500 feet across orbiting well out there in the asteroid belt uh, every, you know, three or four years, uh, called Bennu, which, of course, is, again, another name drawn directly from Greek mythology, the so-called Bennu bird, which is the namesake and the origin of the whole concept of the phoenix legend, the bird that immolates itself in its own ashes and then rises newborn as a new incarnation of the phoenix. Well, the phoenix mythology comes directly from the ancient Egyptian mythology of the Bennu bird. So, um, when the Bennu mission several years ago was launched and took several years to get to uh, Bennu in the asteroid belt and then was commanded into orbit to spend a couple years flying various circles around this tiny, relatively tiny, I mean, kind of like skyscraper size, 1,500-foot uh, asteroid, which looked really very un-asteroid-like. It um, did not have a potato shape, didn't look like anything that, you know, comic book artists or, you know, um, movie writers and producers and directors and television producers and all that have portrayed to the American people and around the entire world of what asteroids look like, uh, Bennu, in fact, looked like a truncated cube octahedron, which, as I described on Clydeshow on Thursday, is basically a uh, square. You've got four straight sides meeting at 90 degrees. And from both sides of the square, top and bottom, you have a very elongated pyramid, which comes to a point. So it's got four sides sloping down to a point, uh, symmetrical around the midplane, which is this uh, four-square shape. That's called an octahedron. And the one that Bennu looks like is really heavily eroded. The, the top points have been whacked off. Constant meteor erosion over probably millions of years 
So you got the remains of the um, uh, central part, the equatorial part, missing the top and the bottom. And that's the shape of this so-called asteroid named Bennu that OSIRIS-REx from NASA visited several years ago. Well, in addition to spending, you know, months and months and months orbiting, uh, looking basically at all aspects of Bennu, at the very end of its uh, mission, it basically took a uh, nosedive with a sample arm into uh, the surface of Bennu itself and collected a sample. And that sample was then packaged up in a capsule attached to the Bennu spacecraft and then ejected on a trajectory that would take it past the Earth in a couple of years, where it arrived. And when we come back from the break, I'll tell you what happened next. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, January 27th, 2024. You're listening to A Piece of the Action on the other side of midnight, and there's a reason for adopting that original Star Trek, very interesting, and as you'll see, relevant episode. So, resuming. So NASA sent this unmanned spacecraft called OSIRIS-REx, which stands, of course, OSIRIS is Orion, and Rex is Latin for king. OSIRIS king, OSIRIS, you know, one of the mythical god pharaohs of ancient, ancient Egypt, maybe, what, 30,000 years ago, give or take, depending upon who you talk to. Anyway, this mission went out, rendezvoused, went into orbit, 
successfully looked at all kinds of parameters with remote sensing instruments, cameras and spectrometers and all that, sensed radiation and uh, got some amazing video. And then at the very end of its mission, it plunged this uh, sample collection device, like a long telescoping arm with a dustpan at the end of it, into the asteroid, kicking up a huge amount of material, closed the pan, brought it back into the spacecraft, inserted it in a capsule which was designed to separate from the mothership and depart on a trajectory aimed at Earth eventually. And last fall, it finally arrived in the form of a streaking artificial meteor in this reentry capsule containing these priceless samples, the first the U.S. had ever retrieved from an asteroid in the deserts of Utah, retrieved, sent by helicopter to the adjunct of the old lunar receiving laboratory in Houston, Texas, at the Manned Spacecraft Center, there to be opened and analyzed as the first asteroid samples ever retrieved by the U.S. brought back to Earth and analyzed by the friendly local neighborhood space agency that our tax dollars support. And therefore, there was a problem. Because for four months, NASA claimed it couldn't find the right wrench or screwdriver to get into the canister to open it up in a sterile environment, in a clean room, in a, in a clean, sterile glove box. And so we waited and waited as weeks and months went by. And after four weeks, four months, I'm sorry, eventually, NASA said just a few days ago, well, we finally were able to create the right tools, et cetera, et cetera. And we opened her up, and that is my item number five. Now, if you click on number five, which is the actual NASA.gov page for the Bennu sample canister, and then at the very bottom, you read all the way down to the very bottom, there is a link to an amazingly high-resolution image of the photography that NASA did when they first were able finally to open the last two fasteners, bolts, nuts and bolts, whatever, and open the damn thing up in a pristine, sterile condition. And what I have done over the last week or so is I have lifted several close-ups from that image, that official NASA image, which are items six and seven and eight. And our, one of our guests tonight in the second hour, Ruggiero, also has taken some and will be talking to them in terms of his expertise, which is doing really detailed drawings. And what I find and what you're going to see in six and seven and eight of my items for tonight, for Saturday, December, December, January 27th, uh, the program, A Piece of the Action, is that there aren't rocks and dust and pebbles and gravel and the stuff that NASA and all the rest of us were told to expect. No, there are more obviously, blatantly technological artifacts in this sample canister in color. 
All I've done is increase the saturation. Those are the real colors of the real stuff in the pan. And in item number six in the upper left, you can see something that frankly looks exactly like an old corroded lithium ion battery. With complete with a little gold glint at the top where the, you know, the, the ceiling in the factory of the battery uh, normally takes place here on Earth. In the bottom left of that picture, there is circuits, actual printed circuits, geometric on the surface of a kind of cube-like object and on and on. Item number seven, the circle in the bottom right, that's one of the, you know, very resistant uh, bolts or screws or whatever held this thing together. The light area in the upper left is the insulation in the pan, which was basically padding. So when the scoop reached down and picked up the samples, they weren't simply jostling around in a metallic, you know, container which might break them or damage them in some way, but they basically bounced in zero gravity off the cocoon-like layers of insulation and uh, soundproofing and uh, uh, foam. It, it's kind of like a foam. It absorbs impacts and all that. And in the left-hand corner, which is enlarged in number eight, there's two more objects that are obviously artificial, obviously machined, obviously have component parts, and one of them looks for all the world like more circuitry, kind of like at the top middle of number eight. Needless to say, none of this should be there. None of it. And it's not rocks, as you're going to hear from a number of our uh, panelists tonight who have independently looked at this and have come to very similar, if obvious, conclusions. So it's now, you know, obvious in hindsight that the four months that it took for them to find the damn right screwdriver, I mean, the, the cartoons and the late night jokes and all that were, were merciless. NASA can land humans on the moon half a century ago and it can't find the right screwdriver to open its damn can. I mean, it went on from there. No, this was obviously some kind of delaying action. So... When you look very carefully, when you look really carefully at these close-ups, and we have many, many more, it's obvious that what they were waiting for was to make this extraordinary high-resolution image of what's in the can available to the world, but not before the appropriate ritual time. There is some kind of ritual calendar clicking in the background, inexorably counting down to disclosure, both in the area that I specialized in for the last 30, 40 years, which is artifacts left by a whole bunch of folks out there all over the solar system, big and small, architecture, arcologies, and now micro machines and circuits retrieved from something that everybody thinks is an asteroid, but of course, in fact, is what we said it was all along. One of these ancient, ancient spacecraft, habitats, a ship, endlessly now orbiting the sun like a derelict, waiting for us humans on Earth in this era to reach out, bring samples home, and try to figure out who they were, how they lived, 
Did they leave us something even more interesting than junk? Are there libraries in these ancient spacecraft? Computers, holographic, non-specific sources of data on a whole ancient panorama of stunning pre-human history to which up until these photographs were made public, most of the American people and 99.99% of the world has no idea is a reality. Which brings us back to Slim. Because if you look at item number nine, you know, click on it, make it bigger. In the Japan Times a couple days ago, there was a story which is actually posted as my item up above. Let me let me go back and give you the number. It's item number two. That is from the Japan Times as recopied and reposted by space.com. Well, there is an extraordinary new aspect to the crashed kind of slim mission on the moon. Because if you look at that image that was released uh, a couple days ago at this new press conference by uh, JAXA, which is the Japan uh, Space Agency, they released a photo taken by one of the two little rovers uh, ejected from the uh, slim spacecraft as it was descending the last few hundred feet to its bizarre upside-down landing. And they were ejected apparently before the spacecraft turned upside down and then hit the ground. And they have cameras. And the cameras had links directly to the NASA JPL Deep Space Network. They didn't have to route their signals through the upside down lander. So they were able to take pictures of the lander apart from the lander by basically sitting on the lunar surface a few feet away and taking a set of images, one of which they released, as I said, a few days ago. And as you can see at the very top of the inverted spacecraft, there are supposed to be two engines. One of them is missing. It turns out in the last few hundred feet of the landing, something extraordinarily bizarre and weird and impossible happened and it ripped off one of the engines, producing unbalanced thrust beyond the control of the attitude control system. And so the spacecraft, since it was basically almost standing still, uh, the last couple hundred feet, it came down erratically. It apparently hit and rolled. And the Japan Times, quoting the JAXA um, uh, management, and the, the uh, wording is right there. Japan Times adds that Sakai, who was a member of the Slim management team, the Japanese team, said that the loss of the engine was the result of, quote, an undisclosed external factor. Adding a camera had captured an engine nozzle lying separate on the lunar surface. The team, according to the Japan Times, is continuing to analyze the cause of this impossibly unprecedented space history 
failure in an effort to land a robot on the moon. So at this point, let me go to my panel because we have some really good panelists with us tonight. Um, what I'm going to do is to go back up to the top of the page. Remember, hover over the navigation bar on your phone and you will see a list of tonight's participants. Uh, Holger Eisenberg is with us. Um, there's also a fast link to bios if you look under the uh, fast links to items in that navigation bar. And Nova has a sterling background in space science, engineering. Um, he's an imaging specialist. He was the first to call to NASA's attention that they had put out the wrong color of the original Viking imagery from Mars. And he's currently working in Silicon Valley for uh, mainstream companies that we don't need to mention tonight. Holger has been following both these missions, the Peregrine mission and the SLIM mission, and has some really interesting things to add to our conversation. So without further ado, Holger, what is your assessment of this bizarre series of events? Uh, about the image from uh, the small rover during the SLIM landing, that I, I saw it as the most colorful image uh, received from the moon so far with a, with a gold gold mylar foil spacecraft in the background with a nice lit uh, lunar surface in the foreground uh, of course a bit unfortunately head first landing <laughs> uh, and uh, adding to that uh, uh, simulation gamers who, who went through the uh, Kerbal Space Program uh, years ago, they uh, remembered uh, a similar photo of a start screen from this game. That was uh, the start screen of the game Kerbal Space Program, a space simulation game uh, around 2015, where a really similar scene was shown with a well, frankly, uh, if they if the North Japanese base if the Japanese base their design of their spacecraft off this Kerbal, you know, space video game, they were nuts because anybody, any engineer could have said, if you have a problem, it's going to roll. Why is it going to roll? Because it has what was called in the trade a very low moment of inertia. The ancient surveyor spacecraft by NASA, which landed successfully on the moon, Surveyor 3, which landed on, uh, let me do a parenthetical here, the design of the slim lander was supposed to land on a slope of something like 10 degrees. Surveyor 3, which looked nothing like the slim lander, which was a big tetrahedral three-legged stool with arms that stuck out, you know, of, of uh, booms. Those booms were deployed when the rocket thrust it toward the moon on the final, you know, third burn to give it escape velocity to reach the moon. It, it created a really what we call a high moment of inertia. For people who don't imagine what I'm saying, remember all these high wire walkers, both in circuses and some of these daredevils that walk across canyons, whatever, and they're walking on a single, you know, cable, very narrow cable, and they have this huge long pole. Why are they carrying a pole in front of them? 
because it changes their moment of inertia to where if they make a misstep or there's wind or whatever, by rotating the pole up and down, they can basically balance themselves on a very tiny cable and not fall off and kill themselves. The, the Japanese designed a spacecraft that almost was destined to have problems because it was small, compact. You know, it's kind of like that old uh, joke when you fall off your horse, tuck and roll. Or if you're a ballerina, you know, or, or if you're an ice skater, you know, doing uh, some kind of uh, uh, demonstration or showmanship or whatever, inevitably you will see skaters tuck in their arms and spin very fast. And when they p p fling out their arms, their spin radically is reduced because their moment of inertia, as it's called, is increased. The Japanese had the dumbest damn design, particularly if they want to land not on the flat, but on some kind of slope surface. And the reason we know that the surveyor design worked and the Kerbal slash Japanese design of Slim didn't is because when Surveyor 3 landed at that crater on the moon, on the left-hand side of a full moon, where, where uh, astronauts from Apollo 12 were to follow them with a manned mission a couple, three years later, they literally bounced down on the tetrahedral three-legged footpads on a 15-degree slope and came to rest right side up and were sitting there so the astronauts from Apollo 12 could land next to them, walk around, and clip off certain materials to bring home. The design of the Japanese mission was dumb to begin with. And you want to ask yourself, given that we've got decades and decades, 50 years of space experience, why would engineers even of another country like Japan, strike out on their own, take a design from a damn video game and not use the tried and true design of NASA that's a half century old and has been proven in a series of stunningly successful unmanned missions at the dawn of the space age. And I'll bet, Holger, you have no answer to that as I don't have any decent scientific or engineering answer. Go ahead. Well, it, it was designed uh, to rotate on landing. It was, it was designed to topple on landing by 90 degrees. Unfortunately, it exceeded that by another 90 degrees. <laughs> so it was not a... Well, it, it, well, it, it did not only that, but it twisted sideways. So it landed on its side and the uh, solar panels which were supposed to be facing up, are now facing to the right in that image, uh, you know, from J the Japan Times, space.com, and they lost power on landing. The battery started draining because, of course, the panel was not recharging them. So they shut everything down, and they're waiting for, I think, later this coming week, the moon will rotate. The idea is now that we see the geometry, the, the sun will eventually move around to that side of the spacecraft, will be able to recharge the batteries, and they'll get maybe a week or so of, of, of useful something out of a two-week planned mission. Because, again, in a very anomalous fashion, all of these robotic missions, the Indians, 
the Japanese, the astrobotic mission, they're all being designed to die after the end of the lunar day, after two weeks, after sunset. And yet, 50 years ago, 1966-67, Surveyor, when the dawn came up, it came back on the air, and NASA was, uh, at the end, trying to figure out how they could command it to turn itself off because it was dominating a limited range of frequencies they needed for successor Surveyor missions. And I actually joked with Homer Newell, who came to see me at the museum in Springfield during this period of time. He was the deputy administrator of NASA. And I said to him, Homer, you're going to have to send somebody up there with a damn stick to beat it to death. Joke, of course, because Apollo was years away. The point is, the earliest stuff, when we knew nothing, survived not just one lunar day, but multiple lunar days. And the current stuff where we have this huge database of data on how to survive on the moon, state-of-the-art technology, better batteries, better insulation, better everything by orders of magnitude, they can't get the damn things to survive even one lunar day. And what's wrong with this picture? But here with, with the slim landing, uh, it's ex expected to wake up on February 1 because uh, from the orientation, the, the solar cells will receive light soon after or during. Well, sunset. that's because the moon is rotating and the sun's going to go around to the side where the, where the panel is now facing, right? Yeah, on, uh, yeah but, it, but after on sunset, the... it's not going to wake up again. So they'll have less yeah. than a week in a very unusual position because of a dumb design. How do I know? It's not me talking. It's NASA's database. You do not design spacecraft with tiny moments of inertia. You want them as big and wide as possible so they will not rotate easily. Anyway, enough of that belaboring. Please continue. Uh, yeah, it's uh, the sunset is on January 31, and uh, then it will receive light, charge the batteries, and the expectation is to be able to switch it on during the beginning of the night and on February 1 or shortly later, apparently to uh, cool the system down that it is not overheating when operating. So that is... So are the Japanese there. now saying that they intend to try to wake this thing up when the second dawn comes up in like three weeks? Uh, no, in, on February 1. On February 1, the night is beginning in that location, in the landing location. Right. And then they directly plan to wake it up during the night, apparently. During the night? Yeah, because it oh. is the night uh, on the third quarter of the moon. Okay. So still in a position with reception to so Earth. So the idea is they're, they're planning to recharge the batteries, which I presume then would run heaters until they run out of battery power. Is that the idea? During the night. That's the plan I heard in the press conference. Well, they're trying there. to get their missing week back, which which is yeah. which, which is a good improvised plan. But unlike the folks at Astrobotic and NASA, who basically ordered Astrobotic to kill Peregrine, the Japanese are going to try to keep their mission alive as long as possible. Isn't that interesting? That's uh, the meteor ending from Peregrine. That was indeed a bit surprising. <laughs> but, uh, and, but 
all about the, this timeline, this, this strange month, starting with the Peregrine One launch and the Osiris capsule opening on uh, January 11th, and then the Japanese uh, landing, unfortunate landing. But uh, I looked up the, the the previous Japanese missions, and they had uh, the biggest their biggest success was uh, asteroid sample returns twice in 2005 and 2020 from Ryogo uh, asteroid and from uh, previous in 2005 the other asteroid, and that mission was named uh, Hayabusa. And Hayabusa means uh, in Japanese uh, peregrine falcon. So another, another peregrine this month. <laughs> well, they all share the same mythology, even though Japan is light years away from ancient Egypt. Isn't that interesting? So let's go now to this loss of the engine. Because I know that there was a previous interplanetary mission um, uh, called... Akasuki, which was a Venus-bound mission. They were supposed to go to Venus, uh, burn the engines uh, for what they call Venus orbit insertion. And they lost an engine when they started the burn. And they claimed that it was a leaky valve that delivered a propellant mixture, which was oxidized rich. So basically, they had an explosion in the engine. But that began at the beginning of the burn, not within seconds of landing safely on the moon at the end of a 20-minute burn, because they took about 20 minutes from when they lit the engines in low lunar orbit to where they were poised over the landing site, and then they claim some external event. I think the key here, Holger, is it's not like the Venus mission, because that was an internal event, i.e. a valve, propellants. This they specifically claim, if you go back to my item number, I'll get the, the thing here for you in a second, go back to my item number uh, nine. Um, they basically say it was an external from the spacecraft or its systems. So let me tell you what I think happened. On the way down, they hit the glass. They hit the dome because they were trying to land in a place called Mare Nectaris, which in Latin means the Sea of Nectar. Remember, these names are hundreds of years old. And if you look at any decent imagery shot from Earth uh, or from other spacecraft... Um, Richard? Yes, Richard. Andrew? Sorry, it's Andrew. Um, can you hold on that? Oh, we're, that actually, we're actually yeah. at the top of the hour. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad. All right? I am so glad that you reminded me. So, Holger, we'll get back to you. Don't go away. Sorry, folks, but there's a lot going on tonight that I'm trying to cover in a very brief period of time. So let me do something here, which will let everybody know that we are, in fact, uh, uh, we don't want to miss our hard break, because when you do that, uh, very bad things happen, and we don't want bad things to happen. So, we shall return after a short break. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>